0: better to have a short life that is full of what you like doing, than a long life spent in a miserable way. Welcome to
1: Today we are joined by the absolute legend himself, Matt Lawrence. Matt's innate drive and mental strength saw him take an unusual path on the way to becoming a professional who clocked over 500 games for Fulham, Millwall, Crystal Palace and more. He captained Millwall in the FA Cup Final against Manchester United, He celebrated promotions, relegation scares, but also endured relegation and the feeling of being underappreciated at a club. All that, so much more. Let's get started. All right, so today we got a special treat, Matt Lawrence. Welcome to Footwork. Thanks for coming on.
0: Hey, no worries at all. It's it's a pleasure to be on with you guys, and it's nice. It's uh, four o'clock in the afternoon, my time, so... uh, it's, uh, it's a good time to chat. Thanks for dragging me away from the Liverpool game. I appreciate yeah, that. I, I mean, uh, when we set <laughs> this up, I, got, I kind of forgot that this was Champions League night. And I, then... I just want you to know how much I've given up to talk to you guys as I'm missing the first half. <laughs> but hopefully, hopefully from your point of view, Atletico Madrid will be 3-0 up at halftime. I can okay. watch the second half. Liverpool I-, I was going to say, are we, are we rooting for Madrid in this one then? Uh, well, I'm a Liverpool fan, so I'm rooting for oh. Madrid from your point of view. Okay, for okay. for the first half, as long as I can watch the comeback in the second half.
2: Right.
1: Okay. Cool. <laughs> Make it entertaining. I, mean, I,
0: I want to start right there. Then
1: I just I didn't know you were a Liverpool fan, so I'll ask yeah. you one question. I'll ask you a simple question about Liverpool. Is Salah the best player in the world right now?
0: Uh, is he in terms of form? He's form, very yeah. close. I'm gonna mm-hmm. I'm gonna sit on the fence. He's very close, but Harlan's there. Lewandowski's there. So. Yeah. It's hard to judge, and I mean this, is it's hard to judge players from uh, league to league, from mm, Champions mm-hmm. League to Bundesliga to Premier mm-hmm. League. But certainly, even with my objective hat on, as you said, as a Liverpool fan, I, I, yeah. Salah's up there. He, yeah. he has to be mm-hmm. He's in the top three, probably right now, playing the, the best football of his career. Well, definitely the best football of his career and possibly the best footballer of any player anywhere in, in the world right now. So, yeah, look, if you have to ask me, yes, he is. But that's in the last month, you know. Who knows what's going to happen in the next month or even what happens as we're talking now. He may get injured, he could get sent off, he could miss three of the worst misses ever. So, yeah, it's it's all relatively subjective, but he's, he's phenomenal right now. And I yeah. think whether you're a Liverpool fan or not, you'd very much enjoy watching him, certainly when... Messi and Ronaldo, even though Ronaldo last night scored, <laughs> did a, scored a couple, those guys are definitely coming to the, the twilight of their career. And, and it's good to see other players coming up. Messi and Ronaldo have dictated to the world and, you know, the football world for the last, mm. what, 10 to 15 years, got it's all the ball out, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I'm happy for someone else to be there, especially as he's a Liverpool player yeah i mean i am not as happy being a united fan i don't know if
1: i should uh divulge this information to you this <laughs> early in the podcast but uh now I, I, I can
0: always mute you or yeah. just switch <laughs> you off. <laughs>
1: no i mean I, as objectively speaking i agree i mean it always comes down to form and it's yeah. tough with with um just the way i mean the, the defensive work he does too it's just tough to uh kind of name too many players above him I know you said Holland Lewandowski I would agree with those two did you have a player I mean when you were growing up in England uh youth system um did you have a player a famous player or favorite player that you looked up to that your uh, your family looked up to or anything like this
0: uh certainly my my earliest memories and I, I don't really see how they can be but in my mind this is my earliest memory <laughs> Kenny Dalglish signed from Celtic to Liverpool uh, for £440,000, which doesn't sound much now, but was a lot in 1977, uh, to replace, he came as the number seven, replacing Kevin Keegan, who left Liverpool to go to Hamburg. That's my earliest memory of football, but I'd have been three years old then, so I'm not sure, I don't think I can remember that, I'm obviously, I think I'm projecting that I remember that, but that's sort of my (laughs) first love of a a football player and a footballer Partially why I, you know, I'm I'm Liverpool fan because of him. As I say, I mm-hmm. I, I, I seem to remember Kenny Dalglish playing in, in green and white for Celtic. But again, I don't think I can because I was too young. But you know, certainly growing up from my earliest memories to into my teens, Kenny Dalgleish as a a legend of Liverpool and Scotland and Celtic, and then also obviously as a, a manager of Liverpool as well. So that was my. First love of football, first love of a, of a player, and, and like that's never gone away. Even mm. when he's sitting in the stands with Ian Rush at yeah. Liverpool now watching the current team, you know, I'm, I'm always interested to say what he's mouthing. If anybody can Ripley. uh, yeah, some lip read what he said when uh, United went 5 0 down, you know, yeah, <laughs> I saw him laughing yeah. up there in the <laughs> stands, <laughs> yeah, he a passionate fan. So, yeah, that's my earliest memory, and it's still, he's still. My love of the game is big partially because of him.
2: Mm-hmm. So, can you walk us through, uh, you know, young and the the image of young three year old Matt talking about the uh, the transfer of new Kenny Douglas to Liverpool is pretty hilarious. Were you into football as soon as you could walk?
0: Yeah, certainly. And again, I, I don't, I have no memory of this because I was walking. I'm sure at, at twelve months, but my my mum uh, always took me out into. We had a garage where we used to park the car, um, and I I apparently almost made my mum take the car out of the garage. And I'd be running around in the garage because it was cold when I was 18 months. That would have been December 1975, and I was the only way I could be kept quiet. My mum told me, and my father told me was by kicking a ball around. So that was that's my or my my mum and dad's earliest recollection of me playing football. But my love for the game began just with you know around sphere it wasn't football per se but it was something that kept me happy um i'm sure if i was growing up in america it it may have been around baseball in 1975 it may have been a you know an american football but yeah my mum said that i would constantly chase the ball around and you know, lots of people who have watched me during my career will say I spent my whole career just chasing the ball around So Uh, so not 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 much has changed. changed. Nothing's changed. No, but that's it. Seriously. 18 months of age, pretty much from the middle, maybe a bit earlier from the minute Mm -hmm. I could walk. That's what, that's what kept me quiet.
1: And I think one of the things that we, I mean, just from reading up on you and and getting some information, the the path that you took was just one that really kind of stuck to us. So you grew up um, where exactly in England?
0: I grew up in Northamptonshire, which is certainly not a hotbed of, of football uh, or okay. soccer. Um, I grew- Northamptonshire is obviously a, a county for us, but a state for you. So say I grew mm-hmm. up in the equivalent of Northamptonshire, I don't know, Delaware or, or somewhere okay. like that. A small, very small one, yeah. Not Not a hotbed of the game. Um, our local team was Northampton town they were called the cobblers because Northamptonshire is a, a shoe industry so growing up a shoe industry manufacturing a, a county it was at the time obviously not anymore that's that's long been uh transposed to China or wherever it may be but um yeah lo- loads of my friends uh, parents grew up being you know working in shoe factories and stuff like that but yeah it was not a a, a soccer town by any means but uh, I was just and naturally, I guess, gifted at it. And as I mentioned, I've just always enjoyed running around after the ball. So Mm -hmm. it went from enjoying running around after the ball to progressing it from, you know, through six, seven, eight. I used to go and watch my dad play. My dad, you know, my dad will will tell you that he was the best goalkeeper in the world, but my my dad uh, played, you know, crappy Rushton Sunday League football (laughs) which is the wagon and horses play the dog and duck, and it would be the reserve sides of the wagon and horses and the dog and duck. So at four years of age, I would go and cling on to the goalpost and stand that. next to my dad and, and watch a very bad level of football. But it certainly grew or piqued my interest in the game even more. And however bad the standard is, you understand that there's 11 people against 11 people. And you understand what they're trying to do. They're trying to pass the ball in between the opposition and Mm -hmm. score the ball. And I know it's in its simplest form, but as a Mm four-year-old, that's what you take it as. You're not looking at tactics or formation. And I picked it up very quickly, I guess, that that's what you were supposed to do. And my love of it grew from there. I went and watched my dad every Sunday from the age of four, to the age of fourteen, and then I started playing in that team to give me more experience playing. Obviously, mm-hmm. again, adults, grown ups, and as, as a fourteen year old who hadn't hit puberty, you know, I was I was incredibly small compared to a six foot guy who drank twenty pints on Friday and Saturday <laughs> night, smoked twenty Marlboro, and then came out and played football. So it, it wasn't the greatest standard, but it certainly hurt uh, helped me in terms of physicality, and again learning how to deal with the physicality without being able to match it so you have Mm -hmm. to come up with something different whether that's speed whether that's a trick whatever it may be you you Mm can come up with different ways of of playing through that and of course while I did that on a Sunday on a Saturday I would play a couple of years up for my local you know like club team as well Mm -hmm. so all, all the time I was playing against people who are either two years older than me or people who are 10 20 years older than me and Mm -hmm. for me it might not be the right route for some people but for me it was the right right route and it it certainly worked out you know okay for me but that's that's just my kind of upbringing right first off I would
1: like to say I mean I guess it's all relative because I would like to see some of the best players in the world drink 20 pints before smoke 20 Marlboro's <laughs> and then go play out. So that's I at mean, half time as
0: well. There's at least one pint being drunk at <laughs> half time and a couple of cigarettes being But again, I look, mean, that's that is also 14 years ago. That's 19 of when I was 14, it's 1988. So of course, diets even Sunday League players probably don't do that anymore. But yeah. um again, it's uh, a long time ago and nutrition almost wasn't a thing. I know it was, but you know what I mean? It wasn't exactly yeah. as though we were eating a uh, pasta and chicken and rice and things like mm. that the day mm. before game. Mm-hmm. So, I mean,
1: as we're entering those uh, later teenage years, um, did you know that um, like you weren't going to get into the professional academies or things like this? Did you have an idea that college was the, or American college was the route that you wanted to take? And then how did that all come about?
0: Certainly up until the age of about, 14 possibly 15 I was very very good and and there was a a, a, within my age range there was an opportunity to to possibly go on to academies but although I was being a little bit flippant earlier talking about you know hitting puberty again in in the mid late 80s and football in England was very much about physicality and size and height and speed and everybody passed me by at 14 15 16 as they grew and I didn't grow so It became very apparent that I wasn't going to be in an academy team, even back then, well, it wasn't even academies, it was just youth teams and Mm it's called YTS, the youth training scheme for 16 to 18 year old kids. Uh, Whatever it was, I wasn't in the right place at the right time. I mentioned Northampton Town was my local team. I grew up 10, possibly 15 miles away from Northampton. I never once had a trial with Northampton Town. Even when I was very good within my county, even when my club team was playing Northampton Town and we were beating Northampton Town youth team, I never once went for a trial there. So, oh, yeah. because they were, I guess they were like tier three or four. So, back then it was Division One, Division Two, Division Three, Division Four were the four top, top mm-hmm. tiers in professional football. I, I just didn't get a look in. So, it did become very obvious uh, for the sort of early, mid-teens that it wasn't going to happen. Latter teens, so uh, I'm not sure if you know or or the listeners know, at 16 we graduate from high school and then we have a sort of a two-year period where we go to a college before we go to university. So between 16 and 18, loads of people have left school, but I carried on my education and we do what's called A-levels, which follow on from our high school graduation. So during that period, um, there's an England team that's called the England schoolboy team so there's an England professional team for under 18s where you know the kids play for Man United and Liverpool and that and there's also one where you still need to be in full-time education to play for the team so I I was very lucky and I worked my way through the trials and I got into the England schoolboy under 18 side and during those trials um scouts would come over from from the states and Just one of these trials, it was the last 30 of the trials. So there's 30 players left in the whole of England, schoolboy-wise, to whittle it down to 18. And so just at these last 30 trials, Glenn Myonek, who's obviously a a legend in the US, sadly passed away since, but, you know, managed the US under-23 team, managed at the professional level, Houston Dynamo, I think, Colorado Rapids. He was the assistant manager or assistant coach for Hartwick College. And just on a walk back to the dorms that we were having, he literally offered me a, a full scholarship on the spot on this walk. I'd never met him before. I didn't know really a great deal about American colleges per se. I knew it was an option, but I hadn't thought too long and hard about it. But the minute he offered me a full scholarship, that that was it. That was, that was what I was doing, you know. I, I did next to no background on Hartwick. Wow. I, you know, computers weren't quite such a thing back then either. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't on the internet. I wasn't Googling. I had one phone call with a guy from Nottingham called Simon Baker, who was at Hartwick. He was a senior. No, yeah, he was a junior, I think, at the time. Uh, and he phoned me up, and it was January. He's in upstate New York. I'm asking what the weather's like. Oh and he's, God. like, looking out the window. He's like, oh, yeah, it's sunny. It's beautiful. And I was like, okay, cool. Upstate New York in January, there's five feet of snow out there. I didn't know that. I just took him at his word and kind of, you know, off I went to off I went to America, and and, and that was that. I was very lucky in the terms that I ended up at a, a, a wonderful institution of soccer that Hartwick is, and with wonderful coaches because I could have ended up in, you know, <laughs> anyway. excuse the language. Yeah. Missouri, Alabama, Wyoming, <laughs> uh, right. where, you know, football isn't exactly the, the main sport. I could have been at a school where everything was Division 1 and soccer was like the last. I was mm-hmm. lucky. I went to Hartwick. Yeah. It was only us, men's soccer and women's water polo because of Title IX. Obviously, that's the mm-hmm. three, two Division 1 sports and everybody else was Division 3. So, I don't want to say we were revered, but certainly we were very much looked up to. Uh Hartwick, I think, is mm-hmm. still the smallest school ever to have won the national championship. They won it back in 1977. Been to many Final Fours, Final Eights. So it's uh, it's uh a real... Inst- well, it was. Unfortunately, it's not now. But it, it really is or was a, a, a real institution and hotbed of soccer. You know, Onyanta was also almost soccer town, you know, USA. Yeah, yeah. yeah. National- National Hall of Fame, Soccer Hall of Fame was there for a while before it moved to Dallas. It, it was just, um, you know, fate and kind of my uh, career path, you know, went in a, a fantastic, you know, uphill tra- trajectory. So uh, I was very, very fortunate, I guess.
2: Right. And
1: how would you compare just, um, I guess, the lifestyle of, I mean, maybe college is a little bit different than, than what America is, but the lifestyle and then the soccer and the day-to-day from what you were experiencing in in England prior.
0: Um, I I was very, honestly, I was very, very fortunate uh, working with Jim Lennox, the head coach at Hartwick, um, Glen Meinick, in that interim period between offering me the scholarship, he left, um, but Carl Reese, who's now the head coach of Fairfield University, he took over as the assistant manager, he's he's a, a guy from Liverpool, Uh, somebody I'm still very close to 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 this day. And he went to Hartwick, he was at Liverpool and Everton as a kid uh, and a a very good player in his own right. So I was just fortunate that I I was learning from two of the very best coaches in the country at at the time, if not still now. And it felt like a a professional club, but I was going to school. So my classes Mm. were in the morning. We made sure that all our classes were between eight and 12. I would either go to the gym or we would train, we'd train every day from whether it be two to four or four to six. And it just had the feeling of a professional club. And from somebody who had never spent time at a professional club, I had nothing to compare it to anyway. So mm. my analysis right. of it was this is what professional football is because I'm playing it every day. I'm playing it at a very high standard. Um, and I'm being coached by some of the very best people. I know, I, I know that they're the very best now looking back at it because I've been coached by five or six national team managers and Jim Lennox is still the best coach I've ever worked with. You know, wow. I worked with Martin Mark McGee, who was the Scotland national team coach. Laurie Sanchez was the Northern Ireland head coach. Kevin Keegan was the England head coach. Peter Taylor was the England head coach. And Jim Lennox is without a shadow of a doubt the person who has taught me the most about the game. Granted, mm. that may be because that's, that sponge-like period between 18 and 21 uh, I took everything on board and I, I needed to be taught more because I'd never been within the professional game but mm-hmm. between Jim Lennox and, and Carl Reese, I, I, I learned so very very much and come I guess like junior senior year Jim and Carl had told me that I could go go home you know and and make my way in the professional game and I had full belief in them and obviously, you know, without being arrogant, you have to be, any professional athlete has to be, have a modicum of arrogance. I was was more than believing that I was good enough to go back. If it had just been two people saying it and I didn't believe it, I'd have failed. Two people were telling me and I had the inner belief that I would go back and, and play professional football and, you know, again, Right place, the right time, and all of that, but yeah, you know, a certain amount of talent too, and the, the path followed on from American College to uh, to professional ranks back in England.
2: Right, and before we jump to the professional ranks and you going on trial uh, at Wickham, how was the adjustment period when you first got to Hartwick? Was there a huge uh, difference um, in level from where you were playing? I was lo-
0: level, certainly not. It, it was much better than where I was playing. Um, transition-wise in terms of I'm going from England, living with my mum and dad and, you know, having my metaphorical bottom wipe for me every day by my, my parents and, and going and living, you know, abroad. Um, obviously granted the same language, although at times it doesn't feel like it. I, I couldn't understand people, they couldn't understand me. But I went with uh, a guy called Ian McIntyre who was actually... Uh, the captain of the England schoolboy side that I said about um, so we went to we were roommates of the England schoolboy side we went to Hartwick together we roomed for four years there. there was a number of other English players at Hartwick Carl Reese, as I said the assistant coach was an English guy. the transition was was hard in time in terms of being away from my family but mm-hmm. the transition into the, the the pure soccer element of it was simplistic and and not only did I have great coaches, I had great people around me, great teammates. Um, I don't want to th- make out that it was too easy and um, take it too lightly. You know, I moved 3,500 miles away from home for the first time right. ever in my life and there was no computers. We weren't FaceTiming. I wasn't FaceTiming my parents. I wasn't, you know, we were, you know, out of communication apart from letter basically. So mm. um, it was hard from that point of view, but again, I I was lucky, I'll say the word again, it's a bit of luck that I fell into um, a a wonderful place in Onionta, a wonderful college in Hartwick, had wonderful teammates around me and and the community of Hartwick Mm -hmm. bought into into the the soccer team as well. Ian and I went to different people's houses every Thanksgiving, you know, some weekends, uh, teammates would take us home to to Jersey or Pennsylvania or wherever. We, mm-hmm. it, it was like, there was no way I could fail if I went about it the right way. If I went to class every day and made sure I was passing. So I qualified as an NCAA athlete. Mm-hmm. Obviously. And as long as my footballing ability was up to speed and I carried on with that and I wasn't embracing the party lifestyle of college and university too much, uh, it would have been very, very difficult to fail at Hartwick College.
1: So it's nice to hear because it seems like, I mean, growing up in your hometown, as you kind of phrase that, you never quite had the right place, the right time, the right chance. And it seems like this great experience at Hartwick kind of was that right place, right time. And it seemed like it did a lot maybe for your mentality, your ability, and then seems like it kind of set you or reset your mind in terms of ambitions and possibilities in the professional game. So how did you take that? Onto um, the trials, and then ultimately sign, signing with the
0: Wanderers. Um, luckily, as you know, I had two very good people telling me I was good enough. I believed I was good enough, so I graduated early from college. Um, I, I mentioned a little while ago that the two-year transition period we have between high school um, and going to university, I got credits for those at Hartwick. So I was already on a a career path, not career path, but a um, university or college path to be able to graduate early. So (laughs) I graduated after three and a half years. So Christmas 95, I graduated and I gave myself from Christmas 95 to go home to June 96, which is obviously, you know, six months of the English soccer season or the European soccer season to make it as a pro. If that didn't happen, I was coming back to the States to do my master's and go about life, you know, in, in a different manner and more down the mm-hmm. education path. So Ian and I, uh, my roommate from Hartwick, we, we would go back every Christmas and play for a non-league team called Gray's Athletic, um, who were probably in maybe like the sixth or the seventh tier of the, you know, the England English pyramid seat uh, system. So, three maybe yeah about three or four outside of the professional rank so we, we, we would play there uh, during the Christmas period uh, every year I went back there played for greys for maybe five six games in Christmas period and January uh, Christmas period 95 January period 96 and within six games I'd scored four or five goals and I had Wickham, Ipswich, Sheffield Wednesday and a couple of other teams offering me, offering me trials Um, and Wickham were the team that I went to first. And I did very well. I was there for two weeks. I knew within having been there for approximately 20 minutes that I I was good enough to to play for that team and I, I felt comfortable there. And I, I spent two weeks there. I played a reserve game. I scored and set a goal up in the reserves and they offered me a, a, a contract. You know, I think I signed it February the 10th or February the, February the 15th, 1996. So from graduating December the 21st, 1995, I had signed professionally within wow. you know, less, than, less than eight weeks. So again, yes, um, skill level and ability, but also a, a, a little bit of luck as well, that everything mm-hmm. just sort of fell into, fell into place neatly.
2: Right. And do you feel that, uh, how was the level at Wickham compared to Hartwick? That um, you, were, you just left, I mean, December 95, you would have played that season, so right? And then you went right home.
0: Exactly, so even the reserves, Wickham reserves, I think Wickham were in the third or possibly even the fourth tier of the professional uh, uh, system back in England. It, uh, even their reserve team was just so much quicker so much more physical um so it took a, a a really big adjustment and i'd be lying if i didn't say that at times the game would pass me by because i said to you that during training on yours i was good enough but it's training to match day situations and the the professionalism and that real hunger and desire and Almost players within your own team trying to cut your own throat to play in the starting lineup, and obviously metaphorically cut your own throat, not literally, although it came to blows at times. But um, yeah. uh, you know, it, it it took a massive, massive transition. Again, very fortunate that I had that six-month period to sort of bed in. I, I, I played in fits and starts for the first team but I trained with the first team during that last five months of the season, you know, January 96 to May 96 when the season finished. Trained every day, learned how to become a professional footballer, got taught by professional footballers around me what it means to be a professional um, and just learn on the job, which meant that when I went back to Wickham for pre-season of July 96, I was fully up to speed Physically and, and mentally, it, it was a real uh, difficult adjustment. And that's at Wickham. And with, without being disparaging to Wickham, we're not talking about Liverpool here. We're not talking about Man United. Right. But the, the standard was so very good. And again, I, I, was, I was surrounded by a bunch of, you know, very good people as well. And as I think they are at most football teams, but I, but I had a lot of fun doing it, but it was... Um, the learning on the job was very difficult. I didn't even drive when I was there. I remember being driven to training by teammates. And on the way back from training, I'd fall asleep in the back of the car every single day for the first six months, because I was so shattered. The intensity of training uh, physically and mentally just took such an adjustment. And as I say, that's coming from Hartwick College, which was a, a very professional college team in the American collegiate system, you know, but I, I just wasn't, I thought I was ready, but I wasn't ready. But, you know, at the end of that six month period, I was, you know, I, I, I was finally ready, but it took a, a massive amount of adjustment on, on my part. And I think my teammates as well, getting used to this, you know, spotty student kid from America coming over. And it, it took me, you know, I was a bit wet behind the ears. I was incredibly naive, you know, uh, and uh, I, I, I had to learn quickly, I guess. So what were some of the things, I
1: mean, leading up to your, your move to Fulham, um, what were some of the things that you noticed that were changing in your game to, to help you as a more solidified professional?
0: Uh, getting used to training, getting used to training every day and having to be very good in training every day. There's no switching off. You know, when I was at Hartwick, if you had a bit of a knock, you could maybe take it easy through training. Um, so at, at Wickham at uh, any professional team you can't, especially not when you're trying to make it, if you're a hardened seasoned veteran, when I was 35 I could take it easy in training because I'd already proved who I was so to speak but at, at 21, 22 you mm-hmm. have to be on the money every single day to, firstly to get even, to get into the team let alone to then be in the team and stay in the team, I always say it and I'll I, I still stand by anybody can not anybody but a lot of people can fluke making 10 20 30 40 50 professional appearances you can't fluke making 100 200 300 appearances you have to have that mentality that you're going to do it every day and then every week and then every month and then every season and then every you know every calendar year as well it's tough so what what was i learned i was just getting experience my game was developing i was getting Uh, stronger physically. I was getting more confident in my own ability. I was learning to communicate. I was very quiet as a player early on because I was firstly a little bit shy. Secondly, a little bit wary of all these people around me who had been in the game for 10 or 15 years. And I was still very aware that I'd come back from college and maybe I didn't quite believe I should be there, but it was just um, an ease within myself helped massively. But just, uh, I knew I hadn't hit my ceiling. I knew I was getting better mm-hmm. and better every day, mm-hmm. and I didn't feel like I was a professional footballer, re- really and truly, probably until three or three years into my career. Maybe that's down to my own, little bit of lack of self belief or uh, lack of, um, you know, the, the communication skills was another huge part of it. Being able to talk teammates through the game and listening. Uh, There's so many different facets of Mm -hmm. why I felt more comfortable. And, you know, eventually, as you said, I I went to Fulham purely because I wasn't playing at Wickham. You you learn as a Mm -hmm. professional footballer that different managers have different opinions. One manager will think that you're the best thing since sliced bread. Uh, Another manager will think you're useless. And at Wickham, John Gregory came in, went on to manage Aston Villa and Derby and just Took a, I don't want to say a, a, a real dislike, but he certainly didn't like me as a, as a person, didn't like me as a footballer. And it took me a long time to work my way out of Wickham. I spent a long time playing in the reserves at Wickham after playing in the first team to be able to make that move to Fulham. He wouldn't let me go out on loan. He didn't care that I was metaphorically rotting in the reserves he would only let me go if a team would come in and pay money for me. It wasn't a great deal of money. It would have been, you know, tens, twenties, thirties, of thousands of pounds, whatever. But eventually I was lucky that a team and it was Fulham paid money for me. And, you know, the career took another path then as as it does in any sport. You get to learn that uh, people's opinions can have a a massive effect on your career path and where you're going. Uh, And if somebody dislikes you, they can kill your career off very very quickly
2: so Matt you uh you made the jump to Fulham uh after they were willing to to pay the transfer fee for you and then there was a new project uh from new owners that they wanted to get promoted to division one did you feel any new added pressure with this uh you know kind of in the background
0: um added pressure I, I don't think so um the change as you say was uh instantaneous and Huge. It went from being uh, a club where we would struggle, we'd almost be taking sandwiches on the road on the on the coach, to not quite flying private jet, but it, it was very noticeable that we went from being paupers to owned by this rich guy, obviously Mohammed Al Fayed, who owned Harrods, who was a multi-millionaire, who. Had a real desire to, to make Fulham be successful, and look, he achieved. Um, initially, the manager who brought me from Wickham to Fulham remained in charge, Mickey Adams. Um, but it became very apparent that Mohammed Al-Fayed had bigger ideas, and I, I, I'm not—I don't mean bigger ideas. Mickey Adams is a wonderful manager, and Mickey Adams should have stayed in charge. But he had bigger ideas in terms of. Mohamed Al-Fayed had probably never heard of Mickey Adams. Mm. Mohamed Al-Fayed wanted somebody he had heard of to be Mm. the manager of this project, of of his football club. So straight away, he brings in, um, or or, or very quickly, he brings in two England legends. And I I mentioned to you the continuity of Kenny Dalgleish replaced Mm. Kevin Keegan at, at Liverpool. That's what I grew up with. Kevin Keegan suddenly comes in as the director of Fulham where I am a footballer, which is astounding. This guy, you know, was playing for Liverpool in up till 77. Then was the European Footballer of the Year in 78 and 79, I think. Um, And he was director of football. He brought in Ray Wilkins, who obviously, you know, again, sadly has passed away, but had played at Man United, was captain of Chelsea at 17, played for AC Milan, played for Rangers played with Maldini and Baresi at AC Milan. And so all of a sudden we went from uh, this pauper-like football club to this shiny new project that Mohamed Al-Fayed uh, wanted to make work. So we went from having players earning a few hundred pounds a week to suddenly Chris Coleman was bought from uh, Blackburn earning 15000 £20,000 a week, which again in 1998, was a hell, it's still a hell of a lot of money now. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we're, we're talking that was £100,000, if not £150,000 of, of today's money. So to answer Sean's question, did I feel, I didn't feel the pressure. It just became this fascinating thing to be a part of for quite a, quite a while. Look, I, I didn't stay on board for as long as I would have wanted. Uh, again, I felt that I was... Uh, not quite mistreated, but wasn't treated as well as I should have been at Fulham. And, you know, I left Fulham before the, the project had carried on and, and reached its you know, destination, so to speak. But um, I had a great time at Fulham. I met some wonderful people. I played with some fantastic footballers, Peter Beardsley, obviously ex-Liverpool and Everton and Newcastle. He came in and played. Paul Bracewell, Everton player. Paul Pesky-Solidu, Canadian International. You know, I could go on and on. Mike Taylor played for Birmingham. Uh, we, you know, I got to play in training with Kevin Keegan and Ray Wilkins. It was it was fascinating. It was wonderful. I did very, very well for Fulham. Uh, I think the season we got promoted or just missed out on promotion, I played 55 of 56 games. I think I only missed uh-huh. once suspension. Um and I was up due for a new contract. And with all the money that had come into the club, I knew that players had come in to replace me, were earning 20 times as much money as me. And I was still playing in the team and they were in reserves, in the reserves. I felt I should get offered a decent, you know, contract. And, and I wasn't, the, the, the contract mm-hmm. I got offered basically said, piss off, off you go. Mm-hmm. We don't we don't want you anymore, even though i played all those games. So, you know, um, I don't want to say I'm that guy who doesn't want to be disrespected, but I couldn't possibly stay at the club playing on money that I thought was mm. just respectful to me and to, to what, I have, what I had achieved the season before. So, yeah, our, our paths um, veered in, in different directions and, and yeah. my ties were cut. And it's a, a massive shame. I, I re- that's one regret I have. Not being offered a good contract because Fulham was uh, and still is such a, a wonderful football club. I, I've been back there since watching games. Um, I've been back there playing at Craven Cottage for the teams. I've been back Great there stadium. since. I've been, uh, yeah, p- and way better now that uh, obviously Khan's is Khan's in charge, and obviously there's now a swimming pool on the roof of the of the uh, stadium. It's turned into a community stadium. Uh, just a massive, massive uh, regret that things didn't work out there. As I say, mm-hmm. I've been back since I've retired and played in testimonial games and played in charity mm-hmm. games. There. Mm-hmm. Two or three of my uh, very close friends are uh, Fulham fans and things like that. So, yeah, just... a. Uh, just a shame, but it was out of my hands, you know, it's, yeah, it's a, right. it didn't work out, but you know, it was something that was, was out of my control.
1: Yeah. Well, are we, I mean, we try and tell players that um, you kind of have to know your self worth in the end. So, I mean, yeah. it, I think, I think it's a tough thing for a player to go on playing for a club or owners that, you know, aren't respecting the, the amount of work and the amount of games, 55 out of 56 games that you played. I think, um do you feel like there was anything you could have done or you you, you felt that that one was out of your hands as you say as no I,
0: I genuinely felt it was out of my hands I genuinely felt I wasn't a big enough name I genuinely right. felt that one or two right backs had been bought in a right back had been bought in for a million pounds as in transfer fee and then was being paid thousands of pounds a week and was not playing and I was playing so You know, you can't do much more than play every game of the season, barring one. Um, And as you say, look, I I never needed to earn the money that, say, Chris Carman was earning. But as you say, you you have to have some self-worth. And very early on in my career, you know, the other professional players I played, just always be happy with the contract you're signing. Mm -hmm. Don't worry about other Mm -hmm. people. The centre forward's always going to earn more money than the right back. That's a fact of life. Um, unless you're kafu, you know that that's just going to happen. Um, but be happy that you're earning what you need to. Have. Don't sign your contract and then in six months' time be knocking on the door saying I'm not happy with this One contract. More. Yeah. Be incredibly be be happy with with mm-hmm. what you want. The contract I got offered was no good, so I went in and said, you know, we we need to negotiate. And I was told this is a take it or leave it deal, which is even more yeah. even mo- more reason to believe yeah, that yeah. that. Is you know please leave
1: mm-hmm. right and then I mean after that making that move to back to Wickham a little homecoming did you how did you feel as, as a in terms of a step in your career did you feel that was a sidestep coming back from Fulham? Did you feel like it was just a fresh opportunity? what was the mentality going back
0: that's, that's a good way of putting it it's a fresh opportunity 100% in terms of also you have to look at it what you said initially as well. It was a a sideways step for me without a shadow of a doubt. Um, I have to remember that Wickham were bottom of the league when I signed for them. I think it was about... uh, My memory's not great. I think it was about Christmas time I signed for them and they had three points. had three points. Mm. So everybody thought they were going to be relegated. The only reason I went there was because I... I thought they would survive. Um, I thought they had enough in the dressing room for us to survive. So, yeah, sideways, possibly a downward step, financially better step, which helped. It was a longer-term mm-hmm. contract as well. And I did know that if I did well there, that you know other opportunities, other clubs um, w- would come knocking. I, I wasn't worried... That it was that sideways, possibly backward step. I, I, I again had a belief in the people at Wickham, and belief in myself that that wasn't like the, you know the end of the road. You know, mm-hmm. it was uh, it was the move I had to take to play football, to earn more money, and it was great that I was going back to Wickham, and I felt I was going back to Wickham as uh, almost as a fully rounded professional footballer. I okay. felt that what they'd seen before. I was still learning on the job. I felt that having worked with the quality of players and coaching staff at Fulham, that I was now, no nobody's, any, nobody's ever fully rounded because we always want to improve. Even when you're 35, you want to improve. But I felt I was truly a professional footballer going back okay. there.
1: Mm-hmm. And so what did those two years do for your development? I mean, you came in with that mentality and it seems like, you kind of had that epiphany, all right I made it and I'm comfortable. Do you feel like those two years really set you up for the, uh, you know, the rest of su- the success that you garnered in your career? Yeah. The,
0: the the time and, and what I learned at my initial uh, stint at Wickham and my couple of seasons at Fulham 100% set me up for the rest of my career. What what did I, I learn? Again, so many things. I, I would be sat here for three hours if I said, but growing physically in terms of you know I knew my body shape had had peaked had stopped growing I was getting to learn how to use the gym I was getting to learn how to recover I was getting to learn how to eat right how to train during the off season because you know the cliche is that you're always you're a professional athlete 24 hours a day seven days a week and you really are even, you know even when you're in the pub the, the, the time that you're in the pub watching the football with your mates you're still a professional athlete you still have to be careful of what's going on um, it, it's just it's a multifaceted growth of a, an individual of me as an individual and as an athlete and taking on board learning to take on board um, what the coaches are saying working out which bits to maybe, Weedle out and not listen to, working out which bits to truly take on board, um, working out which bits uh, uh, of advice teammates are giving you and which bits to disregard, um, and really learning to to watch football and analyse it, be more analytical of the games I'm watching, whether it be Liverpool playing Atletico Madrid, whether it be Man United playing Bayern Munich, them watching games at my own level as well and, and just taking many, many different pieces of, of everything, coaches, players, my own learning process um, and, and just growing, you know, experience of playing. But when, By the time I returned to Wickham, I played over 100 games of football. I said, you, you don't fluke that. I played over 100 mm, games. Mm-hmm. I knew how to be a professional footballer. And I knew what to do on every match day. I I knew how to uh, focus on my game. I knew how even having a a wife and kids, I knew how to block them out going into the game. And that sounds horrible and heartless and inhumane, but that has to happen. As you're travelling on the coach to the game, you switch your phone off. You're you're focused on on what's going on and, and the path ahead. And then when the game finishes don't get too upset if you've lost don't get too high if you've won because the next game is only three days away and Mm. you can have a post-mortem for a certain extent about what went wrong and what went right but also know that you've got the next games there at any second you're never going to win every Mm -hmm. game something's always going to go wrong
1: so i'd love to keep on that just for a second because yeah the highs and lows and things like this and how do you feel that you were able? What are some of the things that you would do to kind of keep that level head and not get too high after, when not get too low after a loss, and kind of keep that same baseline? I would say
0: a, a lot of it is down to good coaches, and that coaches aren't going to come in after the game and if you've won five nothing, tell you all how wonderful you are and throw down five crates of beer and say, "Go on, lads, party!" You know, you've just won three points. You're the best. Um, not having managers who, when you lost 6-0, will come in and throw teacups at your head or kick football boots at you, a Ferguson and David Beckham. Um, but also it's in having the, the coaches that treat the team as a, as a team and then treat you as individuals as well. I was somebody who could respond to being shouted at. I didn't mind being shouted at. It probably would have been worse for me if somebody had put their arm around me and said... You played so wonderfully well. I, I liked mm. coaches picking out what went wrong. Of course, I needed to be told what went right to a certain extent, but make sure you tell me what's gone wrong as well. Um, how do you? That, that's part of staying on the even keel. It's what's going on around you mm-hmm. and your family. And my dad would come to most games, most games. And my dad would always have something to say about what went wrong, which is great, rather than telling me how wonderful I was Um, Mm -hmm. and also my own innate ability to not believe, you know, maybe people will say it's a bit of a lack of self-belief at no point did I ever think I was fully grown, fully rounded. Mm -hmm. No point did I think I was the next Ronaldo, you know, no point did I ever think I was the next Lee Dixon as a, as a right back. I was always trying to grow. So I think that's just an inward mentality. I don't think I needed to do anything Per se, I I think it was Mm -hmm. there, Uh, and I think it had been learnt from coaches. You know, from down to a junior school when I was eight years old, and my coaches never getting too excited with me, or Jim Lennox at Hartwick College never telling me I was the best thing, you know, in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, you you take your guides from people who who teach you, uh, and that can be down to school professors as well. Can be down to obviously down to your parents, down to siblings. I, I think we are sponges and we 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 take on board little bits of everything from every facet mm-hmm. of our life of course you, i was focused on football
1: do you feel that just from the day to day you're someone who takes motivation from what they can be and what level you can reach
0: certainly when i was a, a, as a footballer yeah yeah I, I always was or i thought i was always striving to be the best I could be you know some people may disagree and and tell me how I didn't do the best I could do but certainly as I got I know we're now moving on a bit but as I got older I would you know prehab more and and work on prevention of injuries more and staying fitter in the off off seasons and working in the gym not only before training and then after training Um, as I say it's just growing as a as a, as a person and, a, you know, as, as an individual, as, as you get older and develop through, through your career. And, and mm-hmm. maybe I'm making it too simplistic. Maybe I'm making out that it all just fell into place, but I don't feel I needed to work that hard on the mental aspect of it. I felt that that was there. I felt I'd learned that from people around me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, as, as much as it may be ingrained, I certainly picked up bits of, of that, you know, that mental strength from other people as well. And, and, and watching when I was 21, 22, watching good professionals around me, seeing how they acted, seeing how they responded to defeat, seeing how they responded to being sent off, see how they responded to the manager shouting at them. You know, it, it's, it's, it's like growing up as a child. You, you learn from what's going on around you, your, your environment. And if you put into a bad environment as a child, it's very hard to escape it. So I was lucky that I always had a good footballing environment and I always learned from it. I never really needed to escape it because I never had a bad one. I would move from club to club, but there would always be good environments. I felt at the time.
2: Um, And then you made a big, big move to Millwall in 2000. Um, How was that as a move for you? And then uh, in terms of at that point, you are a seasoned professional. You've played over a hundred games. How was that move for you?
0: It it was it was wonderful. Um, I was taking my I think it's my stepdaughter uh, to swimming lessons at the local like leisure centre and Laurie Sanchez, who was my then manager of Wickham, uh, phoned me up and said we've had a bid of whatever it was 250,000 from Millwall for you. I don't want to accept it, but the chairman was on the phone at the time of the bid coming in from Millwall. He was on the phone to Barclays Bank. And Barclays Bank said, you're 200000 in arrears. And as he, as he was told that, he literally picked up the other line and somebody offered him more than that. And so the move happened from that, you know, in that financial sense. It was great for me. I don't think Laurie wanted me to go. I know he didn't. I've spoken to him since. I know he didn't want me to. For me and, and my career, it was... Um, a a big uphill uh, move, Uh, again, financially. And again, I got to go and play and work with some really wonderful individuals. You know, at Millwall, I played with Tim Cahill, who had gone on and played in three World Cups or four World Cups, Lucas Neal, who played in the Premier League, Stephen Reid, who played in World Cups, I think, or certainly played for Republic of Ireland, played for Blackburn, Paul Eiffel, who... You know, played for Barbados and played in the Premier League. I could go on and on. Sean Deitch was my centre-half partner, who's now been manager of Birmingham. Yeah. Wow. I was surrounded, again, I was surrounded by wonderful people. And the best bit about, one of the best bits about my move to Millwall, even before I started playing now, the first day I went to Millwall to sign the contract, I was told by the scouts, more things about me, my family and my upbringing than I knew about myself. The the background work that they had done on me as a human more than me as a footballer and and what they knew about me meant that I knew I was, firstly, I was wanted. I knew they were a good football uh, club because they'd done their due diligence on me. And I knew Mm -hmm. that if they did that on me, they'd done it on everybody. I knew that they wanted good people within the dressing room more than they wanted good footballers. Because if you get good people in the dressing room, you can develop them into good footballers. Good footballers who are bad human beings, it's very hard... For them to develop into good human beings mm-hmm. um or, or maybe not good human but, but bad people within the dressing room look at mario balotelli he's got all the skill in the world you wouldn't want him anywhere near your kids under nines team if he was eligible let, let alone anything else it's just a, a, a bad individual i'm sure it's a lovely person but he's just a bad individual to have in the dressing yeah. room i knew that i was that that i was told before i'd even signed my contract I knew that I was walking into a good place and and Mm -hmm. that helped me massively.
1: Mm -hmm. So then can you touch on some of those levels of success that you had personally as um, I think player of the year, and then your team also enjoyed a nice uh, promotion campaign in 2000, 2001. So can you go into some of the things that you enjoyed personally? And then I guess some of the reasons why you think your team were so successful in addition to what you said about having the good characters in the dressing room.
0: Yeah, so I, so I went there at the uh, February of two thousand, I think. So there's four months left of the season, we were in playoff, the playoff positions. Quite before, just you know, when I was on the phone to Laurie Sanchez, Laurie Sanchez said to me, and he's the Wicker manager, so he's saying that about rivals of, of Mill. He said, "I hope you guys don't get promoted this year because you're not quite good enough. But you guys will get promoted next year if you don't get promoted this year because because Mill a are, are, are great club." and they've got some really, really good young players there. And he was as good as his word. I think we got knocked out in the, um, I think we got knocked out in the playoffs. I think if my memory serves me right, we just missed out on the playoffs. So we didn't get promoted. And the next season, we were all a little bit more mature. We were all a little bit better um, and we got promoted. And that promotion season um, I was, as you say, I was lucky enough to win Player of the Year, um, the top goal scorer of the team, and my roommate at the time, Neil Harris, has never forgiven me for that. As a right back, <laughs> winning Player of the Year, he was as top a goal scorer, goal, would, yeah. Top goal scorer, I think he was top goal scorer in um, in the league. A wonderful guy. Um, went back and managed Mill relatively recently as well. We're still in contact, but he's never forgiven me for that. But um, <laughs> it, it was nice to have those plaudits individually. Um, one much better than that was we got promoted. So financially, it's good for you. As a team, it's great for you. I think Neil I and possibly Tim Cahill got in the league team of the year. So all the professional players of the league all vote for their best players mm-hmm. as of a, a goalkeeper right back. So you have a, a starting eleven at the end of the year um, voted for by your peers of who is the best team in the, the, you know, who are the best players in the league. And I I was Mm -hmm. lucky enough to be in that as well. And I think that is um, one of the things that I cherish, you know, being recognised by your peers, people Mm -hmm. that you play against every week recognise that you're good. It's not just fans who may only watch you every now and again, or fans who have more ability to vote for you. This is voted for by by your peers. That meant a lot. Mm -hmm. And that promotion season... I really do think we knew from the beginning of the season that we would get promoted because we, mm. we, we were that good and there was that much self-belief and that much self... Um, no, that much quality in the dresser, as I say. I, I reeled off many many players, and it's not just the quality of the players, it's the background that the club did on all the players. I honestly couldn't tell you one bad person... or, or Not only I mean bad person, one bad individual in a footballing sense within that dressing room that made life tough for any of us. Mm -hmm. We were in it together. We went Mm -hmm. out together, Mm -hmm. you know, we'd go bowling together, go go go-karting together. Yes, we'd have a night out together. You know, we would fight on the field together, you know, metaphorically and not metaphorically. We would fight in the tunnel against the opposition, you know, together, you know, all that. And again, not, not quite fisticuffs, but, but certainly arguments and you know verbal disagreements. It, it was um, a dressing room that, that, that played together and stayed together and that for me showed me if I was ever gonna to go, to, go into coaching or management, which I'm not, i am not, I would take that team and go through not just the starting 11, but go through the 20 people within the dressing room at the training grounds and, and, and take little bits from every player, their personalities on the field, off the field, and also that due diligence that the scouting network had done at Millwall. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I know it's done, sure it's done a lot more now because you have a lot more ability to
2: mm-hmm.
0: check me out, you know, online and stuff like that. But, but the stuff they did in, in 2021 years ago, you know, it was a little bit ahead of, ahead of their time, I think. And, uh, you know, just as much as the players and the fans and the coaching staff deserve credit, like the scouting network behind deserve a massive Massive credit for that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, ability to construct a, a, a tight-knit um, dressing room. Forget the ability. I really do believe that it's the, the tight-knit dressing room more than the quality. The quality is great, but the fact that we were all very, very friendly and all good, good people really helped.
1: Now, we can't mention um, the success at Millwall without mentioning the FA Cup run and final ultimately in 2004. I mean, a crazy and amazing story. We'd love to hear um, you go into detail about this whole run, if possible.
0: Yeah, it um, it all fell into place. Uh, we were, again, luck plays a big part in things. Um, we didn't play a Premier League team until we played Manchester United in the final. And, you know, you, we saw what happened there. But that's getting a bit, bit ahead of myself. A- any cup run, you know... We were lucky because we're a championship team, so you join in the third round. Um, You miss out the first and second rounds. You miss out all the uh, qualifying rounds because you've got to that certain level. So uh, I I can't even remember. I think we played possibly Walsall in the the third round. That's great. So, But but that early on, it's just nice to have a cup run. You know, the league season's going well. So the cup run, it's nice to have a little bit of a a, a, a release from, you know, the, the day-to-day grind almost of the league and, and obviously the further along you go you start thinking, wow, we're only two games away from the quarterfinals or four games away from the final um, I think we played Burnley in one of the rounds that, that went well and then we played a, a non-league team it was it was Telford, I think, we played whether that was the fourth round or whether that was the fifth round, I can't quite remember, but um it was a dreadful uh, winter in England, and we kept going back and forth to Telford. I think we had, I think the game was postponed about four times. We'd get down to Telford, it would rain, the pitch would be waterlogged. It wasn't a great pitch because of uh, because it was a non-league team, and and that really really dragged. But again, I think that showed like the mental um, ability of of the team to stay within the moment of being able to deal with keeping on going down, having multiple games called off. And I, I think that type of, uh, that mentality really helped as well. Helped with the cup run too, and helped with us being successful. So got through that as well. And it then starts getting interesting. and You know, you get to the quarter-final stages and, and, and then things start getting interesting because you, know, you know, you see which teams are left. Um, and the, the, with any cup run, it's about who you draw in the league and how, how you, who you draw in, in the cup. And I don't know whether everybody knows, but the cup draw is we, we still have a, an old, oh, we did at the time, had an old fangled way of, of doing it. So all the balls would go into a velvet bag and they'd be drawn out. And they'd be live on air. And you'd probably have Alan Shearer drawing the home teams and Gary Lineker drawing the away teams. Um, and we were, for, for me, we were fortunate that we drew Tranmere. Chandler Rovers in, in the quarterfinals who aren't, aren't a great team, uh, but you know that um, all of a sudden you become uh, the, the the team that is uh, the favourite. All of a sudden, mm. everything turns around. You're now the favourite mm. in the quarterfinal, and that brings a completely different pressure, obviously. Now that the expectancy is that you win, whereas previously maybe it's not, and you're like, oh, wow, now you're playing against a team we better not slip up. Um, and I think at the den, I think we initially we played them at the den and, and we drew, and then we had to go away to Prenton Park. Which, if anybody knows, Prenton Park up around Liverpool not the nicest place to go. The pitch is dreadful.
1: I saw videos of that, and I, I think there was a missed penalty in the um, at the end of the first, the the first, the replay, the, the replay, the, replay yeah.
0: the the field looked uh, oh, it's dreadful, quite interesting. Did Kevin, did Kevin Muscat missed the penalty in the. I
1: think so. Court. Yeah. I was watching it, some highlights in preparation and yeah, there was a whole lead up on this and
0: they,
1: I, missed I, one, I
2: yeah.
0: think Kevin was the captain, uh, and he missed the penalty. And yeah, so that means we have to go back to go, or go to Prenton park, which is, mm. as you saw, not a nice place to go. But again, our, our team had that uh, ability to deal with adversity, traveling from London up to Liverpool Playing on a, a quagmire of a pitch as, as you yeah. saw it's be, before, you know we, we now play on pitches that are semi acrylic. Prist- you know the, the pristine, plastic yeah. is woven into the grass. I think most pitches are sixty five percent grass, thirty five percent plastic nowadays. I'm sure plastic's not the technical term, but it is. Um, and um, we went up there and got a result. I think it was two one. I think in the in the uh, replay up at Prenton Park. Um, and so then you're in the semi-finals, and there's us and Sunderland, two championship teams, and Man United and Arsenal as Premier League teams. So, great draw. So a great draw. We are very, very cynical, being cynical human beings, that we thought that as those balls go into the bag and they're, they're you know, twirled around, that the uh, sponsors would make sure that Man United draw one of the championship teams and Arsenal would draw one of the championship teams so that Man United can play Arsenal in the FA Cup Finals.
1: I'm sure many, I'm sure many thought the same.
0: Exactly. And obviously that didn't happen. And we played Sunderland. and the semi-finals is at a neutral ground. So nobody's got the advantage. So we go off to to Old Trafford to play uh, Sunderland. So the the biggest ground um, in the country in terms of capacity crowd apart from Wembley. So we, we, we're off there and, yeah, we played a very good game. Sunderland were probably the better team. Sunderland had more possession. Sunderland had more chances, but we, we defended better. Very lucky that we had Tim Cahill playing for us, so he, he scored for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll always remember him running the length of Old Trafford, twirling his shirt above his head yep. to go from the far goal Up to the other goal which is where just to the side of our goal which is where our our fans were so or the majority Mm -hmm. of our fans were so so yeah we we played that game and and we won and it was uh well at first it's a remarkable experience playing at old trafford but to to play in a game where there's that much pressure that you know that you'll get into the to the fa cup final if you win Mm -hmm. uh i've I've never felt anything like it like the adrenaline rush um before the game during the game the nervous energy obviously before the game and then the adrenaline still being with you for the whole of the evening after that old trafford game we obviously and, and nobody would deny us the opportunity to party we went back to our um hotel and and you know parted the night away and and it was uh, a great 24 hours that's for certain
2: and then how was how was that uh, the cup final game? And then we know the result wasn't uh, uh, the, the best. The cup, but.
0: the cup final was tough because during the cup run, during the league season, we would picked up a number of injuries. Kevin Muscat, our captain, broke his leg and I think dislocated his kneecap in the semi final at um, Old Trafford. So you never like seeing friends and teammates getting hurt. So he got hurt. I think the majority of our centre forwards were suspended or hurt. We really had a complete and utter makeshift side in that final. So Mm -hmm. not only are you playing the best team in Europe at the time, in Man United, it's a half a Millwall reserve side. And with all due respect to that Millwall team and however much togetherness we had, when... um, you know, you're down to the bare bones and we really were. I don't want to say that we went into that game knowing we could have, knowing we would lose, but it it became very, very difficult because we didn't have our team. It wasn't our team. I was fortunate because I got to be the captain because Kevin got injured. Wonderful for me. I would give, you know, I would give everything I I could for Kevin to have been the captain, for him to play, for for us to have had a full team and had a real shot. We, we, we would have had a real shot with the team we had if it was if it was the full team and we had everybody out there. Dennis Wise, our player manager, had about 10 cortisone injections in his calf going into the game. Just everything was, was against us. So the day was wonderful. The experience was wonderful. We played against Ronaldo and Roy Keane, and I got walk, to walk out alongside Alex Ferguson, Sir Alex Ferguson and Roy Keane and Ronaldo and Giggs and Skulls and Van Nistelrooy. Of course, it's amazing, but um, I, I don't want to say it, was a, it wasn't a bad experience, obviously, but I, I just I just wish we could have experienced it as a, as a full Millwall team and probably given the fans uh, a, a bit more uh, than we did just because of that it, you know, the inability to to field our full team. So
2: mm-hmm,
0: right. everything was was wonderful. I, I know I'm painting a, a bad light of it. It was a, a great experience and one I will have with me for the rest of, of my life. But um, mm-hmm. there, there was definitely things that were against us in that game. And obviously, you know, you're playing Man United. Um, it, it wasn't a surprise we lost. We, it, You know, if we'd have gone into halftime at nil-nil, it would have been a, a lot better. We went in at halftime, one nil down after conceding in the forty-third minute or the forty-fourth minute. You know, mm-hmm. things things didn't fit into place for that final, which was unfortunate. But look,
1: mm-hmm. you
0: know, not many teams play in the FA Cup final. Not many people in the world have walked their team out. You know, in the FA Cup final, and I got to do both of those things, so I don't have any regrets per se. But I wish more of my teammates had have had that ability to be playing because they were suspended or injured or whatever the case may have been.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So before, uh, we don't want to run out of time here, so we want to um, hit you with some, not quick fire, but a little quicker questions where we kind of get a whole package of the, uh, of the career. So we're going to start off with best player you
0: played with and best player you played against. Uh, best player I played with was uh, Chris Coleman. Chris mm. Coleman, the uh, the Fulham left-sided centre half, played for Wales, uh, played for Fulham, and for uh, you know it, it was everything about him: his leadership, his his strength, his ability uh, in the dressing room, on the pitch. So I am treating that as a, an all-rounded thing. There, there may have been. Other better player, I, I played with Ray Wilkins at, at Wickham, who played 85 games for England. I played with Denny, Dennis Wise, you know. I played with some fantastic players, but as an all-rounded um, individual and player, Chris Coleman was the best. I played with, best I played against. Uh, I played against Ronaldo, but I didn't play against him per se because he was on the other side of the pitch. David Ginola mm. is the best player I have played against, up mm. against. I have mm. marked the, the Tottenham left winger. In and, yeah. and an FA mm-hmm. Cup game at White Hart Lane, I played against David Ginola. And, and the ability he has, and uh, six foot three, he's massive. I didn't realise how big he was, but almost a fleet-footed winger to be that good was uh, was pretty fine. So Ginola's the, the best player i played against.
2: What about your proudest moment as a footballer?
0: Proudest moment, and, and this is, uh, I, I've got three, um, and I'm not going to deviate from that, so I'm, I'm sorry, I've got three. My proudest moments were escaping relegation with Wickham on the last day of the season, escaping Crystal Palace, escaping relegation with Crystal Palace on the last day of the season, and then winning the FA Cup final, uh, winning the semi-final with um, Millwall uh, and, and just all for different reasons, but the adrenaline buzz right. from all three of those was, was amazing. To escape relegation with eight minutes to play away at Lincoln mm. with and Wanderers, it may not feel like the most romantic of things. When you've played 45 games of a season, to go into it knowing that you need to win to survive after all Mm -hmm. that's gone before you. So basically you're playing a season that's one game long and Mm -hmm. the, adrenaline sort of coursing through, you know, everybody and coursing through your veins is amazing. So then to go 45 games and 82 minutes into the season. So now you're playing an eight minute long season basically because it's nil, nil with eight minutes to go. So then score, to know that you are safe if you keep a clean sheet, it's one nil. Lincoln are already re- already relegated. We're staying up if we stay at one nil. Lincoln don't give a shit about anything. They put five people up front for the last eight minutes and just start Man. pumping the ball into the box. And we were obviously, you know, the old cliche under the cosh for the last eight minutes, the last seven minutes. Um, but then for that, you know, that final whistle, um, mm-hmm. the sheer relief, I, I, I sincerely remember going into the dressing room and just sitting down like in the corner. Everybody else was celebrating and popping champagne corks. You, you probably shouldn't be popping champagne corks, but it feels like you've won the league to so have stayed mm-hmm. in the league. Mm-hmm. Um I just sat there for 20 minutes I, I was just I wasn't numb but I was just so incredibly um, worn out like mentally and physically worn out and um, it was uh, it took a long while for me really to sort of come around from that in the dressing room obviously I did but it was uh, it, it felt great once I really realized what happened and we had a or I had a very similar experience at uh, with Crystal Palace as well. On the last day of the season, we had to go up to Sheffield Wednesday, play at their ground, away at Hillsborough, which is a massive ground in front of you know thirty-five thousand of their fans, maybe a thousand of our fans, and we needed—I think—we needed a draw to stay up to send Sheffield Wednesday down. So it was uh, again. Uh, We've been through forty-six games of the season. Um, It was a season where we had been in contention for promotion, but our club went into administration. So if you go into administration as a football club, you get minus 10 points. So we Mm -hmm. all of a sudden we got moved from the playoffs to the relegation zone. Um, And the highs and lows of that season to, again, come down to one 90-minute game was uh, phenomenal. And, and again, you should never really celebrate you know, the, the worst yeah. kind of success, but it, but it felt like that. And again, a lot of it was taken out of our hands. So we went up there and we, and we drew and we celebrated on the pitch. Then 20,000 Sheffield Wednesday fans came on the pitch and we were then having forced to run off the pitch. Um, and I remember the last man of our starting lineup, poor old Clint Hill. I, I was playing right back or right centre half. So I was quite near the, uh, quite near the dugout and the tunnel so the minute I heard the whistle I sprinted off knowing what was coming and, and um, he was playing left back so he was right over the far side so he had the width of the pitch to, and he didn't quite make it and he came back into the dressing room and I will never forget it in a pair of tighty-whities one boot, one sock and completely naked with like red marks, welts over his body he said it had to fight for lit- Actually, oh physically fight his, his way off the dressing room. He'd, lo- he'd lost his shirt, lost his shorts, lost a boot and a sock in the process. Made his way back to the dressing room, and I've never seen anybody, not only elated to have made it, but just pure elation on his face. Firstly, because he'd fought off a number of Sheffield Wednesday fans, but also because he'd made it back to you know the sanctuary of the dressing room and you know all his mates and his teammates, and and that. That one I could celebrate. That one I really, um, I I lived the moment and lived it. Uh, And I remember I jumped in a car with three of my teammates and his parents. Uh, We didn't go on the team coach for whatever reason. We wanted to get back to to London as quickly as possible. Uh, We had a six pack in the car, driving down the M1 motorway, driving south towards London. Uh, We stopped off at a, a motorway service station, like a gas station. And we, we piled out there to use the bathroom um, and we got uh, two or three other of the supporters coaches just happened to be the Palace supporters coaches. So we got absolutely pictures online. We got absolutely mobbed in the bathroom of the service station. Um, <laughs> not in the manner that George Michael would get mobbed in uh, bathrooms in service stations in a totally different manner. But we made it off the pitch. Uh, sorry, out of the bathroom, just surrounded by bunch of everybody, all the fans jumping up and down. And uh, again, it was it was great to see, um, uh, you know, the real people, the real people, uh, you know, fans. What it meant to them for us to have survived on that day, and it and it felt fantastic to experience that with with the fans. It really did. We then, you know, made it back to the car, got all the way back to, to London, and we went out and, you know, parted in the in the sort of local neighbourhood and again with, with the fans. And I guess that was the beauty of the time that I was playing football. There weren't, or, or people weren't so willing to take mobile phone pictures of you. People weren't so willing mm. to sell a story for money. And if I had mm-hmm. too many drinks, They weren't willing to sell stories to the sun, you know, and things like that. It was a time, I don't want to say it, you know, I don't want to sound like an old man there, but it was a time when it felt good to be celebrating with people and feel safe with the fans without... You know, having to worry about what was going to happen the next morning, you mm-hmm. know, if one of us stumbled over accidentally or because we'd had too much to drink and you'd have people taking pictures and making you look a fool the next day. So mm-hmm. that was my second. And then, as I say, winning, winning the third one is obviously winning that semi um against Sunderland. First, it was at Old Trafford, such a, a you know, a monumental stadium, iconic stadium. Everybody everywhere around the world, certainly with with soccer knowledge, knows Old Trafford. So for it to be there, for us to have made the FA Cup final and, again, the the celebrations with fans and with just a a really good bunch of people. So I know that's a very long-winded answer to the question, and I'm sure you only wanted one answer. But honestly, those (laughs) those, those three um, different... um, games and different days at different phases of my life at different phases of my career really stand out now even Mm -hmm. you know a long time later a player who's suffered you know numerous concussions and headed way too many footballs but those that you know the distinct memory of those three days will will, you know will stay with me until you know until until I can't remember them anymore but it will be a it will be a long time sure. you know long time coming that's for sure
1: now, before we get into our wrap up question, um, I read a bit about a few nicknames that you have or had <laughs> from fans, and a I just few. want to know if, if you have a favorite one.
0: Uh, certainly at Millwall, I was shaggy, and I've just <laughs> always been shaggy from, obviously, the, the Scooby-Doo character uh, and the fact that, I will say, but, you know, back then, my hair was a lot blonder. I bleached it a lot more. Um, <laughs> it was, it, yeah. It didn't fall, it wasn't falling longer, out yeah. as it is now. So Shaggy, exactly, a big, long, sort of almost blonde hair. So Shaggy's my favourite. And just, I was at Millwall for six years and I have an affinity to all the clubs I was at, obviously, mm-hmm. and an affinity mm-hmm. to the fans at all the clubs. But um, it was just the longevity of my time at Millwall. I was there for six years. So um, I got to know many of the fans, you know, personally, and they're still, still friends now, Um And I got to know the area as well. You know, anybody who knows Millwall and South Bermondsey and Bermondsey as a whole, I got to understand what uh, Millwall Football Club was as a whole, not just on the the field but around it, the community around it. It has a really bad press and and sometimes rightly so because sometimes there's a percentage of the fans who, who, you know, bring the the club into disrepute but it's a, a very minor number and Back home, the press like to vilify Millwall Football Club. There's not enough gets written about the community spirit around Millwall. Not enough gets written about the good work so many fans do for charity and the club does for charity as a whole. So the nickname that they gave me, I, you know, I kind of cherish it. And still when mm. I go back home now, people will be on the train when I'm around London and shout the nickname out. Same. And it, it, you know, it, it's, it's nice and it's nice that the fans... Um, I think they realised that I gave my all for Millwall until it finished as everything Mm -hmm. finishes at a certain point but Mm -hmm. I think they know that I hold the the club pretty dear as as, as I say, as I do every club uh, I'm not being disparaging to any of them but but Millwall has uh, that affinity because of the cup run, because we played in Europe, because we went through some some really good times and um, yeah, you know I think the fans realised what a good thing they had during that probably 2000 maybe even 1998 before my time up until about 2004 2005 it was a a good time in the in the club's history Mm. so here at footwork we kind of have
1: this motto that's make your own path it's kind of how it sounds essentially you know kind of going against the grain maybe or not following the social norm just to reach your goal do what's best for you and your ambitions rather than you know relying on comfort and what society says so I mean, do you find any um, relation in that quote? And do you feel like you truly made your own path?
0: Uh, I think so. I, I, I certainly made my own path. I think we all make our own path to a certain extent, of course. I think I'm also very lucky in being who I am, in what color I am, um, what, you know, what gender I am, um, who my parents were. I think my path was made very much easier because of all of those things. I don't think I face the adversity that, that lots of people around the world face. Um, uh, I've got a good bunch of friends as well. I think it's like a, a Bill Hicks quote. It's something like it just takes the right friend, the right woman and the right bar. And, you, you know, any of us can end up like a bum, you know, and I mean that. in, the, in a, I mean, that almost in a literal sense and almost as, as, as a metaphor as well. Uh, I could have been born anywhere, I, I didn't choose to be born where I was, it, it, you know, I don't get to choose who my parents are, who my friends are, not all the time. Um, but I, I, I'm very aware of my um, of my good fortune as well. And I know that's getting a bit off topic, but I'm incredibly aware that my path has been made much easier mm-hmm. for me. But when, within that path, of course, I've, I've faced adversity. I guess just not the university that lots of other people face. So um, I, I'm very, very thankful that my path that I constructed was was made much easier because of who I am, and and mm-hmm. that's um, something that's that's out of my control. But it doesn't stop me looking at, at other people around the world and thinking, you know, that not everybody would would even have the ability to make my own path. And and I think mm-hmm. that's something that um, that I think about every day, and I think about you know how lucky I am, and other people aren't aren't so lucky. But mm-hmm. um, what what I have done that doesn't take away from what I've done, that doesn't take away from how hard I worked, uh, how hard I worked at school even to pass my exams, how hard I worked to learn to be able to read, write, and learn my times table and things like that. And it also doesn't stop me realizing that. You know, I'm probably only one mistake away from, or, or even during my career, one big mistake away from everything going away. You know, you only need to look at, is it Henry Ruggs who who just got done for, for drink driving and got into the car crash and through a fault of his own and ended up taking somebody's life. And his whole life is ruined now from doing that. He'll, he'll never forgive himself. I'm sure he'll never play in the NFL again. He'll go into, go into prison. And again, I'm going off on a little tangent here, and it's, you know, there's there's lots of other people around the world more fortunate than, than, than us three who get to make mistakes time and time and time again, mm-hmm. and they still carry on on their career path. So I'm, mm-hmm. you know, within each of our paths and within my path, I'm very aware of all of our differing levels of ability to make our path. And, mm-hmm. you know, somebody like me who is is fortunate, but I'm still only one mistake away from my career path, you know, whatever it may be, finishing tomorrow. I'm I'm not Mm -hmm. completely, uh, I'm not as fortunate as some may be. I'm not not Prince Andrew. I can't make the mistakes that he did and still carry on with his life, you know, Mm -hmm. but I'm also much more fortunate than many other people. So I may not have answered that question quite um, in the manner that...
1: It's a a great, it's a refreshing perspective uh, of of um, gratitude. And yeah, it's...
0: Yeah, I'm fortunate. uh, Mm -hmm. I am fortunate. You you Mm -hmm. know, we we all know what goes... Or I wish everybody knew how difficult it was for other people to Mm -hmm. create their own path. But um, Mm -hmm. yeah, the the path that I have made, I have made myself, but it has been made more fortunate because of who I am.
1: No, it's a great perspective and uh, couldn't agree more. Now, Matt, where can people find you today before we uh, before we end? Where can they find you? Are you on social media? Are you doing anything
0: uh, um, online? And Where can you find me today? I'm at Matty J. Lawrence on Twitter. Um, I think I'm on Instagram, but I don't use Instagram. Uh, <laughs> I'm not on Facebook, and I'm very glad, given the current climate, that I'm not on Facebook, and I've never yeah, been lucky. on Facebook. Um, I hope that gets disbanded but um, I know it won't but um, I hope it does um, where else can you find me currently I'm sat in my apartment in Jersey City I've moved from, <laughs> move from Jersey City I want from Manhattan to Jersey City so that's where I am now but um, I'm working for NYCFC doing the radio broadcasts So it is at nycfc.com forward slash radio for any commentaries you want to listen to of NYCFC. I think think that's the right one. I am also working on radio shows for Sirius XMFC and you will find me on Sirius Channel 157. So that's those uh, little bits of advertising done. Um, That is that's that's pretty much it. That's where you'll find me. I'm yet to find a local pub in Jersey City, so I couldn't tell you where, we'll, where you will find me locally. I've only been here a couple of weeks, so I'm sure I'll soon find a local pub. But uh, you'll also find me, I'll tell you where you'll find me. You'll find me at the GMT Tavern on Bleecker Street, where my friend owns a bar, so I'm there as well. He's just about mm. to reopen there after, go. Um, after a, a fire that was no, through no fault of his own. So he's just reopening up now, so yeah, GMT Tavern, on the corner of Bleeker and LaGuardia in Manhattan. That's where you'll
1: find. <laughs> I love it. There that. we go. <laughs> I might have to when I'm back in the winter. I may have to meet you there too for a yeah, yeah, for real. That's where will be. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's been a no, pleasure, and um, you know we could talk for hours. And hopefully, there's a there's a round two sometime.
0: Yeah, a- anytime you want. Anytime you
2: want.
1: Footwork is sponsored by ourselves. Also, Kong Fitness and Merchant Designs, baby. Follow us on Instagram at footwork underscore podcast. Twitter is at footwork podcast. YouTube and Facebook, just check out footwork podcast. Search it. Email us if you need anything, any questions at footworkpodcast at gmail.com. And remember, plug, plug, pass. Tell your parents, Amazon delivery guy, mailman, I don't know who, just tell them. Like, subscribe, review,
0: all of it helps. Danke.